Hello and welcome to A Flat Pack History of Sweden, the podcast that takes you on a chronological journey through Swedish history. I'm Elsa and this is episode 60. The Big Six O, and I'm Chris. This episode is dedicated entirely to one person, Saint Birgitta. We've previously had a few semi-biographical episodes on some of the earlier kings who popped up in the story so far and had a few uh, life events that meant we could do a whole episode just about them. And of course we did a three-part series on Birja Jarl. But this is the first non-monarch who we're looking at. And the lady has come up time and time again in our latest episodes as we make our way through the 14th century... But this time we're really going to delve deep into who she was, how she came to be so prominent in Swedish political and religious life, and yeah, everything about her. But as always, it's time for our Swedish phrase of the week. Yes, this week's phrase is Gammal kärlek rostar aldrig. And that literally translates to old love never rusts. Exactly, and this time there's really no hidden meaning or double meaning. It means that love lasts over time and doesn't fade. It's very similar to how we in English say old love never dies, but in Swedish we've been a bit more poetic, or maybe metallurgic, I don't know, and say that it never rusts instead. Well, it's very nice and romantic, and I would just say that Orsa's voice is a bit weird, so if it sounds like she's a bit gravelly, that's because she's a bit gravelly in real life. Yeah, I think it's the remnants of the cold I had a few weeks ago that's uh, still in my throat. Seeing as there's no real segue from colds and throats, I guess maybe like St. Birgitta was around the Black Death, so maybe uh, she sounded a bit gravelly like you. Um, yeah, maybe. She she did escape the the plague, though, as far as we know, she never got sick. Yeah, so regardless, there's no proper segue, so let's just uh, begin. First of all, this episode is going to invoke a lot of religious themes and topics, uh, perhaps not a bit of a surprise as we're talking about someone who became Saint Birgitta. And of course, if you want to set the scene a bit, if you are new to the podcast or can't remember some of the religious things we talked about last time in our specific episode about Christianity in Sweden, you can go back to episode 29, which now feels a long time ago, half the podcast yeah. ago. But yes, should we go on? So, yeah, without just repeating everything we talked about then and in previous episodes that have touched on Christianity, let's just point out how deeply religious the world of St. Birgitta was. 14th century Sweden, just like 14th century Europe, was an incredibly religious society, both on a personal and state level. So it was into this deeply religious world that the protagonist of today's episode was born in 1303. While we will dedicate today's episode to the life and work of just one person, it is worth keeping in mind that no one lives their life in isolation and everyone's journey through life is impacted by events that happen in the world around them. And that's certainly true of St. Birgitta, who's getting involved in these events in a higher political and religious level than a lot of other people do at the time. And this certainly happens throughout this episode. A lot of these things have actually already happened in the podcast so far, and we've briefly mentioned them, but now it's time to go into her involvement a little bit more deeply, and also minor spoilers about what's going to happen, mainly just to her in the future as we go on. 
Exactly. So we just keep in mind that whilst we talk about her life in particular, more overarching things are happening in the world around her, like the reign of King Magnus and the Black Death. But now let's start at the beginning. So going back in time, 50 odd years or so. Yeah, in the podcast chronology. St. Birgitta is born in 1303 on a large estate called Finstagård in the county of Uppland. As we've seen with so many people in this time period, including many royals, they didn't bother to write down the actual date of her birth, as that wasn't really seen as an important thing at the time. It might be seen as a bit more important for Birgitta as she almost wasn't born at all, according to legend. Her mother was travelling along the coast of Sweden whilst heavily pregnant on a ship when said ship was struck by a storm and was wrecked against the rocks. But Birgitta's mother, Ingeborg, because copy and paste that name, was saved from the shipwreck and she was saved by someone quite important too. It was none other than the king at the time's brother, Duke Eric Magnusson. And this, of course, is the father of the current king, so to speak, King Magnus. So she was saved by a huge person in society. That seems like a big deal. And if you think so, then you'd be agreeing with the church at the time. If you go to Duke Eric's Wikipedia page, you can see an image of a painting from 1437, which shows the Duke rescuing Ingeboy from the shipwreck. It is one of those quite funny medieval paintings where the people are sort of three or four times as big as the boat. So do check that out if you can. They weren't great at perspective drawing, or, or maybe that was on purpose. I don't know. I think it was just they were rubbish. <laughs> Well, when did we become art critics? Anyway, we'll put a link in the episode description so you can check that out. I became an art critic when I create the episode pictures. <laughs> that about makes me technically an artist, so I'm allowed to critique other people's art. Oh, well, let's not open that can of worms. But yeah, so Ingeborg, lying down, happy that she didn't die in the shipwreck, has a vision whilst asleep the next day or the next night. And in this vision, a person in shining clothes spoke to her and said that she had been saved because of the good that she was carrying inside her. And so Birgitta is getting involved in religious visions and semi-miraculous events and rescues even before she's born. And she's, of course, not born Saint Birgitta. If anything, by calling her Saint Birgitta, we're, uh, we're giving people massive spoilers about what's going to happen, but we know this already from what we've mentioned in previous episodes. And so now it's not really any secret that she will become a saint, but like all saints, she doesn't become one until after her death. And so during her lifetime, she's just Birgitta, or Birgitta Birger's daughter, in fact, to give her full name. Her last name, Birger's daughter, is daughter of Birger, which gives you a hint of to who was her father. Her father was lawman, knight, and counsellor Birger Persson. Burger person, as they would say in, if someone was saying it in English. <laughs> Hi, I'm Burger person. <laughs> That's the thing. I don't know why English people like to make Swedish eyes a U. Like instead of Bier, it often becomes burger. 
Oh, anyway, her, let's it's more, go. It's more the G that is the problem. Yeah, because maybe. the G is a Y. I mean, it is more fun if we call him burger person yeah. than B.A.L. person. <laughs> yeah. So it, let, let's just decide that he was called burger person. Yeah, he, he hadn't been promoted to Burger King yet. <laughs> like we made that joke about Burger Yarl, he yeah. became Burger King. <laughs> Speaking of names, actually in Swedish, Birgitta is often referred to as Heliga Birgitta. Holy Birgitta, again alluding to the religious status that she will get during and after her life. In English sources, you sometimes find her name anglicized to Bridget. But for simplicity, we'll just call her Birgitta. Um, that's nice and easy. Yeah, sounds good. So, being the daughter of Lorman Birger on Finstergård is a pretty sweet start to life for Birgitta. Her family are, in fact, one of the wealthiest in the entire country. Her whole extended family on both her mother and her father's side is just full of lawmen, bishops, knights, and other rich and powerful people. The family owns several estates, and it's not known if Birgitta spends her entire time at Finstergård or if they move around between these various estates. They probably did. Her father Birger isn't just powerful because he's a lawman, that high-ranking position in society, but he was in fact extra powerful because as lawman in Upland, in particular, he was in charge of the site Morastena, which, as we've mentioned uh, a lot a long time ago, but not so much recently, was the location for all the elections of the Swedish kings. So if there was going to be an election of a new king... Birger managed the place where that happened. I mean, we've been to Murastenar, and now in 2022, or I guess it was 2021 when we went there, it's just a little hut with some great big stones inside in a field off the motorway between Stockholm and Uppsala. But in the Middle Ages, this was the political heart of the country, so it's easy to see how being in charge of that meant both power and responsibility. So when Birja wasn't busy looking after Morastena, after all, they're, uh, sometimes you're busy electing kings every other year and sometimes, <laughs> yeah. sometimes you're waiting a few decades. So he might have been uh, not too busy recently. Um, he was busy being a knight and doing the other duties of a lawman. Uh, but he did manage to find time to have seven children with his wife, uh, Ingeborg. And they have three sons of, unfortunately, only one, Israel, survived to adulthood and four four daughters. Again, two of them die young, though, too, so it's only Birgitta and sister Katerina who survive into adulthood, with Birgitta being the youngest child of all. All these children dying young is a sad reminder of what life was like in the Middle Ages. It didn't matter that you were among the richest and most powerful families in the country, infant mortality and death in childhood were still common, and in large parts unavoidable. But it doesn't end there. When she was only 10, maybe 11 years old, Birgitta's mother dies, and Birgitta is sent to live with her maternal aunt, Katerina, and their family on their estate in Östergötland. Already when Birgitta is a child, she starts to experience something that will follow her throughout her life. She has visions. And not just any visions, religious visions. She sees people like Christ and the Virgin Mary, and she sees scenes from scripture, like how Christ suffers on the cross. 
in that sense, we can see how Vegeta's road to sainthood begins already in childhood, or even perhaps you could say before she was born with the shipwreck. Because, and this might seem odd to us today, but her visions aren't just dismissed by the world around her as the imagination of a child or some fantasies that she's inventing. In fact, one of her visions, when she sees the Virgin Mary put a crown on her head, is corroborated by her aunt, who says, oh, I saw that too. Yeah, and we might find it difficult to grasp, or even a bit ridiculous, that she sees these visions and that they are taken so seriously, because, as we'll see later in her life, her visions are taken even more seriously when she's an adult, and what she sees in her visions will influence politics, both in Sweden and abroad. You maybe can't help but think, like, uh, well, why are you taking this girl or, or later woman so seriously? I mean, if I went around today and said I got messages from God, I doubt that I would have the same influence on Swedish politics. Maybe just the Christian Democrats party. They might listen to you. You might be elected their leader. Nah, I think even them don't ascribe that idea of uh, Christianity in their politics. But all jokes aside, what we mean is is that their lives and their world were so drenched and marinated even in religion and church that these things didn't seem odd to them in the way that they perhaps do to us. Yes, and I think what you're saying is a very important thing to remember when we look at Brigitte and her visions. They weren't out of place in her time in the way that they perhaps are today because she definitely isn't the only one. There were others in medieval Europe who had visions and heard messages from God. It is also important to remember that she belonged to the very upper crust of society. And without getting too ideological here, we do tend to ascribe more seriousness to what people in higher positions say and have done so throughout history. There is no way to know, of course, but I would guess that maybe if Begitta was a poor landless labourer and not a member of the nobility and the daughter of a lawman, she might not have been listened to in the same way. Well, she certainly wouldn't have had the same kind of platform for her messages that she would end up having, that's for sure. But yes, young Begitta grows up on her aunt and uncle's estate. She has these visions and maybe she would have wanted to pursue a religious life or profession and become a nun or something like that. Either way, that isn't an option she chooses or her family let her choose. Instead, she's very much brought up to be the woman that her society and class expects her to be. She's going to be a nobleman's wife in charge of the management of an estate or even several estates and have lots of children. And as is also often the case for women from her section of society in the 1300s, she marries young. Very young. She is only 13 years old when their respective families arrange a marriage between her and a man called Ulf Gudmarsson. Now, Ulf is 18 at the time of their wedding, and he's from a family very similar to Begitta's. His family is also full of lawmen, counsellors, and knights, and Ulf himself will also become a knight, and in 1328, he assumes the position of lawman of Nerka. Later in life, he will also become a member of the royal council, so he's, yeah, he's high up. 
Yeah, um, if it's because of their young age or Birgitta's religious piousness or by mutual agreement, we don't know. It seems like Birgitta and Ulf didn't consummate the marriage until Birgitta's later teens. We know they don't have their first child until a few years into their marriage. Their daughter Märta is born around 1319, so when Birgitta would have been around 16 or 17. Märta is then followed by another three daughters and four sons. Ulf and Birgitta are slightly more fortunate than Birgitta's parents were in that all their four daughters survive into adulthood, but sadly two of their sons die young, leaving them with six surviving children. Her two surviving sons and middle daughter Katerina will return later in the story as they become involved in their mother's life and work later on. Ulf and Birgitta live on the farm Ulvsåsa by Lake Båren in Östergötland, Here, Birgitta manages the day-to-day running of the large estate, which is essentially like operating a small business if we compare it in modern-day terms. This was very much a woman's job in 14th century Sweden, if you were a noblewoman, that is, because the men would often be knights and off fighting or holding jobs in the running of the state. Like in Birgitta's case, her husband Ulf was a lawman, So it was up to the women to make sure these large estates function and produce all the food and clothing and products that they and the people who worked for them needed. So Birgitta is doing this, managing the estate, having eight children, and in the middle of this she also finds time to take on another job, that of lady-in-waiting to Queen Blanche. And this is when we first mentioned her in the regular narrative when this happened in the early 1330s. Queen Blanche, or Blanca as she's known in Swedish, is the young bride of the equally young King Magnus. And so in the early 1330s, Birgitta becomes the Queen's lady-in-waiting, a job that's sort of a mix between mentor, assistant and private secretary. In this position, both Birgitta and her husband travelled around Sweden with the royals. In the 1300s, Sweden doesn't have a fixed capital as such, in the sense of a fixed seat of power or one palace that they're always living in, but rather, in order to rule, the royal court and all the state functions that followed the king travelled around the country to various large estates and castles and dispensed justice, managed the land and performed state duties from there. Travelling around with the royal household and being the queen's lady-in-waiting of course means that Birgitta gets close with the royal couple. She also becomes the godmother of their son Erik when he's born in 1339, which is another indication of just how close she is to the royals. And that's also maybe a bit of a hint why Birgitta is so anti his father Magnus later on in the story when the two start fighting. We've already mentioned this close relationship with the royals in previous episodes, and we've mentioned how it turns sour and Birgitta turns to instead run what is essentially a hate campaign against Magnus, but more on that later. So now let's just pause and see where Birgitta is in her life. 
She was born into the very top section of Swedish society and maintained that position into adulthood with her marriage to Ulf. She's managed her estates, had her children, and very much lived the kind of life that was typical for a woman of her class in her time. She's also lived her life close to the centre of power, both through her family status, but most importantly now through her work as lady-in-waiting to the Queen. And last but not least, she's rich. Not just because her husband has a powerful job and owns estates, but Birgitta is also privately wealthy. She inherited seven estates, or very large farms in Smallland, when her mother died, and the profit from those are hers alone. So, for going on 40 years, Birgitta has lived this very wealthy life in the very top echelon of Swedish society, and while she's been religious, this is really when the religious story kicks into overdrive. Yeah, because as the 1330s draw to a close, she decides it's time to once again devote more of her life to her religion. This is a wish she seems to share with her husband, because the two of them set out on a pilgrimage to Nidarus in Norway in 1339. Conducting pilgrimages, a religious journey to strengthen your faith, and often to a religious site, was a popular thing to do in the Middle Ages. And you can see how Ulf and Birgitta, being religious people, and also now a time in their lives when they've had all their kids they expected to have, and have got successful careers, to use a modern term, and very wealthy, you can see how they might want to do this now, instead of doing it earlier. It was also an extraordinary experience for a religious person, and according to their faith would bring them closer to the forgiveness of their sins. So there's a religious reason to do this too. Definitely. Ulf and Birgitta walked for 34 days to Nidarus, or Trondheim as the town is called today, to see the relics of St. Olaf in the cathedral there. They must have enjoyed it and not been put off by the frankly crazy amount of walking, because two years later, in 1341, they set out on another pilgrimage, and a much longer one. They go on pilgrimage to the grave of Apostle Jacob in Santiago de Compostela in northern Spain. In episode 55, we said they went via Norway to Spain, and that's not entirely true. They did head back to Sweden for a year or so before then setting off to Spain, so forgive us for that inaccuracy. Yes, that was a minor error there on our part. But yes, not only are Birgitta and Ulf going to more or less walk across Europe, which in itself is a fairly substantial undertaking, they're also doing it during a very troublesome time in Europe. The Hundred Years' War has broken out between England and France, and in Spain there's an ongoing conflict between the Muslim and Christian population. And that's not to mention all the other standard troubles that pilgrims faced on their journeys, robbers, diseases, con artists, and severe chafing of the feet, and maybe the ferries' timetables being messed up whenever they had to cross a lake or the water or something. So yeah, they had to battle through a lot of things. Yeah, in spite of all this, Birgitta and Ulf make it in one piece and with sore feet to Santiago de Compostela and pray at the grave of the apostle which for a religious person at the time must have been an extraordinary experience but on their way home their luck seems to run out they've reached the town of Arras in Flanders in modern day Belgium you know I've only just now realized that in English Flanders, that's also the name of uh, the Simpsons' neighbour. Yeah. 
Like I have never <laughs> Ned Flanders. Yeah. Yeah, he's called Flandern in Swedish. Yeah. Flanders yeah. in English. Yeah, yeah. And that's so he's called like that old. Yeah, he's part like of called Orsa Östergötland. Or Chris London. Exactly. Oh, mind blown. Almost his eyes are shocked. Ah, uh, I need to lie down and just let this sink in. I can't continue with the episode. Well, with that having now sunken into my brain, uh, let's get back to Birgitta and Ulf. Because Ulf gets sick in Arras in Flanders. We're not really sure what he got, but he's very unwell. Maybe he's had a dodgy kebab. Birgitta does what most people did in the Middle Ages when a loved one got sick, and especially the religious people, she prayed. And in particular, she prayed to Saint Denis. He's the patron saint of France, so maybe she felt that since she was sort of in the area, that might be a good saint to pray to. And we also read somewhere that he was the patron saint of headaches, so maybe if that's what her husband was suffering from, then he was a good saint to pray to. Uh, perhaps he should probably have just prayed to Saint Christopher, patron saint of travellers. Oh, yeah, I forgot that you share a name with a saint. Yeah, I do. Oh, and I share a name with a, um, not a god, but a sort of creature in Nordic mythology. And a town. And a town, yeah. Just called Orsa. Yeah, there's a, there's a town in western Sweden called Elsa. Oh, yeah, St. Christopher. Ah. Anyway, sorry, this is a rambly episode, but I hope we'll, we'll stick more on track for the rest. Birgitta prays, and lo and behold, she has a vision. St. Denis appears and tells her the following. Since you love me with special pious... I will tell you that God, via you, wants to make his will known to the world. You are in my care and protection. This is why I will always help you and I will give you this sign. Your husband will not die from this illness. Pretty powerful stuff. She's essentially being told that she's going to be God's spokesperson on earth. And so as God will make his will known through her. So that's pretty big. We know that Birgitta had visions as a child, and now she's had this one. In our research, we've not found any mentions of her having visions in the time period between, but like we said, she's obviously been religious and done things like gone on these pilgrimages. So maybe she was just too busy with the eight children and running estates to have time for any visions and messages from God in the past couple of years. Yeah, maybe. Now, just like St. Denis said, Ulf recovers from his illness and they continue the journey back to Sweden, returning home in 1343. So they've been away for a long time. And deeply moved by Birgitta's vision of St. Denis and his message, along with Ulf's recovery, the couple decide to leave Ulf Orsa and instead go to live at the monastery in Alvestra. They don't join the monastery in the sense of becoming a monk or a nun, but they live on the monastery's estate and devote more of their life than before to their religion. We know from contemporary records that Ulf participates in some royal council work after they've returned from the pilgrimage, but it's not for very long. Because St. Denis' promise that Ulf is going to live seems to have a very short period of validity. Because not long after they settled at Alvestra, Ulf gets ill again and dies in 1344. Well, St. Denis didn't say how long he'd stay healthy. He just said he'd survive from that illness. Birgitta is now in her early 40s 
and decides that she will remain at Alvastra and devote her life more entirely to her religion. Again, she doesn't become a nun, but she lives at the abbey and will do so for the next five years. We don't know how Birgitta felt about losing the man she'd been married to since she was only 13, but she's probably pretty sad. But we do know that she removes her wedding ring from her finger the very same day that Ulf is buried. She openly declares that now she is not the wife or widow of any earthly man, she is now Christ's wife. And that's pretty intense. Sad Ulf just literally buried and then forgotten about. Yeah, well, hopefully not forgotten about, but Birgitta is clearly taking her life in another direction, and now the visions really come pouring in. She confides in her father confessor, the canon of Linköping, a man called Matthias, Matthias listens to everything Birgitta says about her current and past visions and writes them all down. Uh, he also translates them to Latin and sends them off to the archbishop. The archbishop in turn says, whoa, wow, we better look into this. Is this actually messages from God that are being conveyed through this woman or is he just a bit crazy? And then he does what any good bureaucrat would do. He appoints a commission. It sounds very modern day uh, sort of scandal, political scandal. Appoint a commission. He does. And a commission of clerical hotshots interview Birgitta and analyze her visions and decide that, yes, this is indeed accurate. Birgitta has visions and through them she receives messages from God. We should take this very seriously. In fact, we will take it so seriously, we will write to the Pope and make sure he knows about it. Which is exactly what they do. And if you want to be a bit cynical, you could make the argument that Birgitta, who has spent her whole life in high society in Sweden, rubbing shoulders with both the political and church elites, is probably friends with or related to or knows everyone in the commission. So that might have given her a bit of a leg up in their decision-making process. And also, we're back to what we talked about earlier. This made much more sense in the 1300s than it perhaps does today. The zeitgeist of the time, this intensely religious nature of society, made it possible for her visions to be accepted the way they were. And Birgitta was no doubt both an influential and charismatic person. So now she has this official stamp of approval for her visions, she continues to have them. She either wrote them down herself this time, or members of her staff wrote them down, and they translated them to Latin so they could be spread around the Catholic world. Because the brand of Birgitta is building, and she has staff now to help her Mm -hmm. manage this religiousness. And because these people wrote these visions down or she wrote them down herself, we actually have an intimate record of what they were like and what they contained. Her visions almost always take the form of a dialogue between other people, often divine figures, or as was her case with the vision of Saint Denis, it takes the form of a direct message to Birgitta. Birgitta herself is never actually involved too much in her own vision. She doesn't have a vision of her speaking to other people. It's either getting a message directly from Saint Denis or she's seeing other people talk to each other. 
and through this, she becomes the spokesperson of these divine messages. It's described how when she has a vision, she sits down, grabs a pen and paper, and starts writing as if the message is flowing through her. She's not always asleep and wakes up and has these messages. She's actually awake and just decides to start writing, if you want to be a bit cynical. Yeah, and she's almost like an old-school teleprinter. You know those machines that would spit out long strips of paper with messages typed on them? And the strip would just continuously be written on until the whole message was complete. That's sort of what I imagine her being like when uh, she had her visions. Birgitta's visions and messages aren't just love thy neighbor, blessed are the meek, be a good person kind of thing. No, they're actually often very political. And very judgmental. She seems to want to shake things up among the wealthy and powerful. Or at least the messages she receives from above want to do that. And because of this, this is when she starts attacking her former friends, King Magnus and Queen Blanche, calling them wasteful and blaming much of the ills of the country on those people's extravagant living and, importantly, lack of piousness. If I were the king, I would probably start to doubt the validity of these visions, as who can tell if she's just writing down a letter or if it's actually a vision. There seems to be a bit of wiggle room involved in exactly how these messages are conveyed from Birgitta. More messages come pouring in in the early 1350s when the Black Death rolls around. Her message now is that this is a punishment from God from people's sins, just like before, and she attacks women's fanciful dressing as one of the causes of the plague. Yeah, we talked about that in the Black Death episode. Call me cynical, but between her blaming the plague on women having straps and decorations on their dresses, and King Magnus saying that it could all be cured if people went to church barefoot, it's no surprise that it went the way it did. Nope, not much of help was coming from the two powerful voices of the time. But in general, it's no surprise that Birgitta has a political mindset because she's moving in this sphere in her day-to-day life. And so this just... People should probably expect that her visions would become political at some point. Yeah, definitely. But these political visions aren't just about how much tax the king should raise and things to do with Magnus. It's also about whether or not you should go to war with the Orthodox heathens in Novgorod. She's covering all bases, so to speak. And then she also has a very strong and important vision about an abbey. Yes, quite early on in this period following her husband's death... She has a vision that tells her that it is God's will that she should found a new monastic order and build a monastery in Vodstena in Östergötland. This is going to be a mixed monastery, so both monks and nuns should live there, but, and hold your horses here, it is God's express will, according to Birgitta, that this monastery is to be headed by a woman. An abbess, not an abbot. That's pretty pretty impressive. I know. A vision to shatter the glass ceiling some 600 years before people even started to talk about the glass ceiling. Women had run their own monasteries for nuns, but it isn't practice for women to run mixed monasteries. Birgitta has repeated visions about this new monastery, including some very special and precise 
instructions on construction straight from the mouth of the divine. Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, people would be slightly less sceptical if she didn't just write down page 37 of the IKEA like instruction book for the, for the monastery. It, it is it... essentially that. Like, the windows should go there and it should be so big and so tall because th- that's what God is saying. She's got very concrete architectural instructions. Yeah, and I think this is why we're being a bit cynical because if it was just she had a few oh, you know, society isn't very pious now, people should be better, God says this and that. It's be slightly more relatable and perhaps believable, if we should say this word, um, compared to, yeah, this instructions for building the monastery is a bit, yeah, that can't be real, surely. <laughs> but the first major instruction is that the monastery should be built on land currently owned by King Magnus. Yeah, I mean, that's quite funny. I don't think Bigita ever told Magnus in person, but you want to imagine what the conversation would look like, considering they were no longer on very friendly terms. Uh, it'd be like, hey, Magnus, I need your land at Vodstena. What? No, 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 it, it's not for me. It's for God. You don't want to question God, do you? Give me your land. And that really shows you how strong people did believe in the actual visions and the messages from God. Because like you said, Magnus isn't really friendly with Begitta at this point. So for him to actually do it and give it shows you that people were listening to her. And we've now reached 1350, the year that the Black Death is literally plaguing Sweden and the rest of Europe. But like we mentioned in a previous episode, Birgitta nonetheless feels that it's now time for her to make another big journey. And not just any journey, she's going to Rome. And it's partly to speak to religious leaders about this new monastic order she wants to found, and partly just to try and sort out the general mess and moral downfall that she feels the Catholic Church is involved in. I mean, she's also now made herself quite unpopular in Sweden, especially among the rich and powerful, what with her repeated political visions and attacks on not just the king, but also the general lifestyle of the nobility. So maybe it was a good idea to leave. And she does this picking the perhaps the worst moment to travel through Europe. But as we know, as she travels through Europe, accompanied by an entourage of priests and servants as the Black Death rages around her, she's actually going to the wrong place because the Pope isn't in Rome. No, and in fact the Pope hasn't been in Rome for over 40 years. He resides in Avignon in France. And Birgitta knows this too, of course, but she is hoping that the fact that 1350 is a jubilee year would have made the Pope travel back to Rome, and she is very disappointed when she finds that that's not the case. And this is a jubilee year for religious people in general, just a year that was either 50 or 100, rather than a jubilee year for the Pope or a king or something like that. And in fact, the very first jubilee year, when more sins than usual were forgiven, was actually the previous one in 1300, which was proclaimed by Pope Boniface VIII. So uh, sort of like, buy one, get one free for your um, absolved sins. Excellent. 
Now, the whole reason why the Pope is in Avignon and the general state of the Catholic Church at this time is so complicated and requires so much background information that we're not going to go into it. Instead, just listen to Pontifax whenever they get up to uh, Pope Boniface Eighth and all that type of time. So it will take a while. And so Begitta gets to Rome, but there's no Pope. But she's not going to give up, and after all, she's a woman with a plan, and she decides to stay in Rome. And because there, there are also other religiously important people in Rome, it's not everybody didn't leave to go with the Pope. There are still important people there. And in fact, she's going to live the next 23 years of her life in Rome. And during that time, it's fair to say that she makes probably as many friends as she makes enemies. Yeah, that's probably true. Because Begitta doesn't settle for a quiet life, just eating nice food and waiting around for the Pope. Her visions keep coming and they are as political as ever. They often concern the running of the church itself. Sometimes they're aimed at particular individuals in powerful positions, which probably explains the enemies. Through intense letter writing, she stays in touch and stays up to date on what happens in Sweden, and through her visions, she remains an influential voice in Sweden as well. Quite sadly, Rome is a very poor and quite dilapidated city when Birgitta gets there, and she spends a lot of time doing charity work, aiding the poor and sometimes mediating between different warring gangs in the city. So, yeah, this is amazing. Yeah! Looking at what she does while living in Rome, it almost sounds like she ran quite a successful community outreach program, again, to use a modern term. This is because this is a very different city compared to the heyday of the Roman Empire. In fact, in 1377, just a few years after Birgitta dies, the city is said to have had as few as 17,000 inhabitants. That's tiny. It had over a million inhabitants back in the Roman Empire. So Rome is a very different place. Yeah, forget all these uh, marble temples and statues and all this kind of fun stuff that you might have from uh, Roman times, that image in your head. This is not that place. Like we said, as much as she sometimes annoyed influential people with her political visions and sharp tongue, she also makes friends with them. Her reputation precedes her from Sweden, and she's referred to as the Duchess of Nerke, probably because of her late husband's role as lawman there. It's not a very accurate title, but one she doesn't seem to mind. After all, it's nice to be called Duchess. For five years, she lives in a nice house in Rome that is provided to her by the Pope's brother, which goes to show that she's not just some unknown do-gooder from the far north. She's someone who people are aware of. After over 18 years in Rome doing all this outreach work, during which Birgitta has not just made a name for herself in the city, but has also travelled extensively around Italy, in 1368, Pope Urban V finally arrives back in Rome. And Birgitta was the first to send a meeting request, we can imagine. After all, she must have sent like a million of them by now. And the Pope does agree to meet with Birgitta, and in principle, he likes her idea that she's still campaigning for to create this monastic order and build the abbey at Vardstena. 
Whilst Bugetto has spent the last few decades campaigning for this idea, it's still not really off the ground yet, and there are just a few things the Pope would like to change. We won't go into these changes now, but let's just say that Birgitta is not pleased with this. She's waited years to have a meeting with this guy, and now he wants to come in and micromanage her project. Nah, she's not having it. Also, the Pope is saying he wants to return to Avignon, which Birgitta doesn't like at all. According to her, it is paramount for the strength and unity of the Catholic Church that the Pope is based in Rome. So Begita has a vision. Surprise. Yeah, and her vision says that the Pope will die if he returns to Avignon. Urban ignores this, goes back to Avignon, and dies less than three months later. That's the biggest I told you so Begita <laughs> moment ever. I mean, either way, the fact that her vision about the Pope dying comes true is basically the final thing that means that she now gets what she wanted all along. She gets her monastic order and her monastery at Vodstena. It's like the entire church authority takes one look at Urban's dead body, then back up at Begitta and goes, yeah, sure, do whatever you want. She's going to write messages and kill us all. But yeah, so after nearly 20 years in Rome and more visions than we could count or explain to you, there's really only one thing left she wants to do now. We've talked about her important pilgrimages and now Begitta wants to do the ultimate pilgrimage, the mother of all religious journeys. She wants to go to Jerusalem. Yes, this is the holiest of all holy sites and the one thing left that she feels would complete her life. So off she goes. At this point, both her daughter, Katharina, and her two remaining sons have joined her in Rome, and together, along with priests and servants, they now travel by sea from Italy to the Holy Land. This is in November of 1371, when Birgitta is approaching 70. The average life expectancy in Sweden around this time is 42, adjusting for the fact that so many died as children, and being over 50 was relatively rare across Europe, so this is a very old lady who sets out to cross the Mediterranean by boat. Yeah, and an old lady that clearly doesn't take no for an answer. Now, we would need an entire extra episode if we are going to go into detail on everything that happens on this journey. I mean, her son Carl dies while they're on a stopover in Naples, but only after he's embarrassed Birgitta by openly flirting with the Queen of Naples. Awkward. Yeah. Death and flirting. Yeah, well, in the opposite order, though. Flirting death. (laughs) Then they're shipwrecked off the coast of Cyprus, and when they're rescued and taken to Cyprus, Birgitta is shocked and horrified at the sinful way people lived there, and immediately has like 500 visions that warns and threatens the Cypriots to change their lives. They are then shipwrecked again off the coast of modern-day Israel and lose all their possessions but they're rescued and finally arrived to the port city of Jaffa. By now, this is an old, tired and fairly ill lady that arrives in the Holy Land, and she's on her fourth shipwreck by now, (laughs) if you count the one just before she was born, so she's probably a bit traumatised too. And to make matters worse, there's a heat wave on at the time, and like many older people, even today, Birgitta suffers from the heat. 
but she powers through and the group make it to Jerusalem. Here she has a vision of Jesus who tells her that she's now free of sin and her relatives that were previously in purgatory have now all entered heaven. So that's really nice for her. Yeah, and it was probably an extra nice thing to hear since her son Carl, the one who died in Naples, had lived a less than pious life. So you could see how it was a relief for her that Jesus told her he would now be in heaven. Her remaining son, Biaya, is actually dubbed a Knight Templar while they're in Jerusalem. One of not many Swedish Knight Templars. Yeah, that is really impressive. And from Jerusalem, they continue on to Bethlehem. And here, at the birthplace of Christ, Birgitta has a vision of the Virgin Mary and sees just how the virgin birth of Christ happened, which sounds graphic, uh, but this is apparently something she's wondered about her whole life. In her vision, she sees Maria on her knees in a plain dress with her hair hanging loose. She sees how Joseph was made to wait outside, and then she sees something moving under Maria's dress, an incredible beam of light shines out, stronger than the sun. And then baby Jesus just lies there, clean and free of sins. So, not very graphic at all, actually. And uh, Begitta writes about her vision that Jesus did not come out the usual gate. Okay... The usual gate. That's an, that's an interesting way of phrasing it. I think we'll just leave that there and not open up for what might become a very difficult theological conversation. Birgitta continues to not be in the best of health. She has a fever when she walks down the Via Dolorosa, the route that Jesus carried the cross through Jerusalem, Seeing as they have been in Jerusalem for a while now and it doesn't look like she's getting any better, the group returns home to Rome and Birgitta just continues to get sicker. And so, surrounded by friends and family, Birgitta dies in her home in Rome on the 23rd of July 1373, around the age of 70. And after her life, we can all agree, was pretty something. Uh, that's for sure. A small funeral service is held in Rome, but preparations are made to have her body buried in Sweden. The process is led by her son, Bielior, and daughter, Katarina. Now, we have to say that transporting a dead body across Europe in the 1370s does take some time. So it'll be almost a full year until Birgitta is properly buried, at Vodstena, where the monastery that she worked so hard for is now under construction. She's buried in July of 1374. Her daughter Katarina takes over the implementation of her mother's life work regarding the monastic order and monastery at Vodstena. The monastery is not fully completed and inaugurated until 1384, by which point Katarina is unfortunately also dead, but they do a sort of step-by-step -step opening of the monastery in practice, and nuns and monks start to live there a few years earlier, meaning that in practice, Katarina has time to serve as the monastery's first abbess for a short time. 
Back in Rome, the process of canonization and turning Brigitte into a saint begins pretty soon after her death. Again, this is something that her daughter Caterina and other relatives campaigned for. But canonization doesn't happen overnight, because there's essentially a lot of admin. All of her visions have to be documented and reviewed, something that in particular the priests that she was close to get working on in the years following her death. Her family and supporters in Sweden raise money to keep this process going, a sort of medieval GoFundMe structure to make Bogitta a saint. www.makebogittaasaint.gofundme.com Yeah, I suppose so. Because Sweden in general is quite keen on making Bogitta a saint. After all, we don't have one. And wouldn't it be cool and something to raise our status in European Catholic society if we had our own bona fide saint. Because while Sweden has been celebrating King Eric IX or Eric the Holy as a saint for two centuries now, he hasn't got the real seal of approval from the Pope, so he doesn't count. Yeah, he's a maverick Swedish-only saint. Yeah. And the process of making Bogitta a saint is slowed down by the fact that the Catholic Church is still going through quite tumultuous times, and there's a lot of internal fighting and power struggles. Eventually, though, Bogitta's canonization comes through, and on the 7th of October 1391, Pope Bonifacius IX declares her a saint in a service in the papal basilica of St. Peter, the main cathedral in Rome. Notice that we say Rome, as just a few years after Brigitte's death, she would have been very heartened to know that Pope Gregory IX returned the papacy to Rome, where it has remained ever since. There we go! Sweden has our first saint! Saint Birgitta, Helia Birgitta. And what a saint! What a life! I think we can conclude after having spent this episode looking at it. Birgitta isn't just Sweden's first saint, for 625 years, she was our only saint. Until very recently, uh, it was only when Elisabeth Hesselblad, who lived 1870 to 1957, became a saint in June 2016, that Birgitta got company. She was a list of one for 625 years. Uh, that's quite impressive. We should say that there have been other people who were worshipped as saints during certain periods, just like Eric the Holy, or people declared saints by people other than the Pope, or even saints with a connection to Sweden but who were not born here. But these just never get the full tick of approval. It's really only Birgitta and Elisabeth who have been properly made saints by the Pope. And rather fittingly, Elizabeth Hesselblad was actually a nun in the order that Birgitta founded. So in a way you could say they both come from the same place, really. Yeah, you're right. The monastic order that Birgitta worked so hard for and eventually founded is called the Order of the Most Holy Saviour, or sometimes just called the Brigitines, or Birgitine Ordon. And it's still around today. According to the US branch of the Order and their website, they have a presence in 19 countries, ranging from Cuba to the Philippines to Estonia and India. They have three monasteries here in Sweden, including the original one in Vodstena. 
and their monastery in Rome is located in the same building that St. Brigitta herself lived in those first five years in the city. The Catholic Church are really fond of their like throwbacks, aren't they? They're yeah. like, look, remember this history. So we should go to both of these places. Yeah, we definitely should. My parents have been to Vodstana. They say it's really nice. I drove past it the other day. Uh? Didn't see it, though. We have to uh, plan a trip there. The Bridgetine monks and nuns serve their communities through education and societal services. They maintain a simple lifestyle and remain true to St. Brigitte's devotion and love to Christ and the Virgin Mary. Unfortunately, I've not been able to find out how many they are. Uh, I suppose that varies from time to time. But what I do know is that we can go and stay with them at their guest house in Vodstena. So yeah, maybe that's an idea for a future trip. Go and stay with the Bridgetine nuns. Maybe we should uh, start writing some visions when we get there and change the course of Swedish politics. I think that might be seen as slightly mocking their lifestyle. They seemed <laughs> very nice from the article that I read about their, their guest house. But yes, um, seeing as Birgitta is now dead, uh, there's not too much to learn about her life. There will be the odd occasion in the future episodes where she writes a letter about what's happening in Sweden. We might refer back to her. But essentially, because she spent the last years of her life in Rome, she's sort of out of the main timeline for now. So uh, we might not really mention her again. So thank you, Birgitta, for being a very interesting person. And uh, we'll continue next time with the chronology. Yeah, and next time might be slightly further away than it usually is. Uh, we will try to make the next episode come out in two weeks' time. But as you might have seen if you follow us on social media, we are moving. And as anyone that's ever moved house knows, uh, there's a lot of work, uh, a lot of uh, time needing to be spent on packing and unpacking. And getting the internet in our new flat. Yeah, that too. So just a heads up, we will try and publish the next episode in two weeks. But if we don't, then please bear with us. It'll be out as uh, soon as we can. And uh, if that does happen, we'll post about it on social media. So um, another reason, if you don't always check our social media in two weeks' time or so, go on there if you don't see an episode and we'll be explaining why there isn't one and when it might be. Yes. But until next time, thank you for listening and take care. Hey, doll.